Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we have Chris Ueda. Chris is an associate professor in the Department of Chemistry here at Purdue University. Welcome, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I think the first question I want to throw out is, what do you mean by complicated? Because uh, <laughs> we started asking uh, what department you were, and we found out you were just chemistry, which we were surprised at. And uh, you, you said that you're kind of complicated. What do you mean by that? Oh, yeah. So, um, I think when you're a professor, you can take on all these different roles, right? So you can be part of different departments. Um, sometimes people are joined between different departments. Universities, in addition to departments, have all of these research centers and initiatives and things like that. So um, I started in chemistry uh, seven years ago, stayed in chemistry. So that's sort of my, my home. Awesome. Well, great. And so what are you doing there in your home? What do you what do you study in? Yeah, so um, our lab does a number of things, but um, our central focus is on catalysts. Um, so we think a lot about how to design new catalysts, how to discover catalytic reactions, and then how to make those reactions as useful as possible to people who need to build molecules. Now, when you say a catalyst, what's like your What's the simplest way for you to find what a catalyst would be for like a student that's going into introductory chemistry? You stole my question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, catalysis has a very specific meaning in chemistry. Um, so a catalyst is anything that can speed up the rate of a chemical reaction, but isn't consumed in that process. So there are really two features of a catalyst. One is it makes reactions go faster. Um, so you can imagine all sorts of reasons why we might want to be able to do that. Um, and the other features, it can be used over and over again. So it's not a one-time use thing. Catalysts can operate for years, decades even, uh, and still keep chugging along. So um, yeah, those are the main two things. Oh, how, how does catalysts, how, do, how does that then feed into the research that you're doing? Yeah, so um, we're really interested in um, developing reactions that particularly people in the pharmaceutical industry will then be able to use to make drugs. Um, so most of the drugs that we use, most of the medicines um, are made by synthetic chemists uh, and they're pretty complicated molecules. So making them requires many different chemical steps. Um, and we try to think about how to use catalysts to make that process a little bit easier, make it less expensive, make it easier to deliver compounds on large scale, um, also make it safer and less wasteful. Um, so those are all kind of parameters that we think about. Okay. So you said a synthetic chemist. Now, now yeah. what would, what is a synthetic chemist? Oh yeah, that's a great question. So um, synthetic chemists, um, are interested in being able to produce man-made chemicals. Okay, so um, there are all sorts of chemicals that we find in nature, and those are very useful. Um, so plants, animals produce a lot of chemicals. Some of them are used as pharmaceutical compounds, um, but we also need to create a whole range of different chemicals um, that don't already exist in nature. So that's what we mean by synthetic. Um, so synthetic as opposed to coming from the natural world. Um, so all sorts of things are synthetic. So plastics are synthetic. You know, we don't mm -hmm. mine plastic. Uh, we have to make it. Um, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of the medicines that we use now are synthetic. Um, 
course, at the beginning of human civilization, all of our medicine came from nature, right? Um, but now we've learned how to produce them and how to discover new ones. So a lot of those are synthetic. So it really does ranges in terms of really simple stuff like plastic to really complicated stuff like medicine. Now, when you're talking about a catalyst, sorry, Sarah. No, when you're talking about a catalyst for a reaction, is the reactions that you're actually researching have to deal, overlap with the medical field then with types of medicine? Yeah, so um, I'll answer that question really in two ways. So the first thing is that um, uh, uh, catalysts are actually really important to nature, right? So all living organisms basically were a bag of catalysts floating around in water. Uh, and those catalysts are what make all of the molecules that we're made up of. Um, they copy DNA, you know, all of the cellular processes. So um, we're very much interested in how those catalysts work and how to borrow some ideas from how those catalysts work in designing our own ones. Uh, but we don't explicitly study those. Um, so there are biochemists, enzymologists who really want to study the biological catalysts. Um, where we try to contribute is um, being able to make new molecules that can then be used to interface with biological systems. So most of the medicines that we have, they're designed to interact with specific proteins in the body. And in order to design exactly a molecule that can fit into that protein, uh, we need to be able to make a lot of different molecules. So that's really the end of it that we contribute to is how can we make a lot of molecules very efficiently um, very selectively. And from, let's see, what is the time frame then when you're researching, let's say, wanting to come up with some molecules? How long of a process is that or how, how what's, I don't know if, if it's hours or, or years, I, like what, what time frame are you looking at to develop those? Yeah, so discovering a new um, drug molecule that can actually be used in the clinic to treat a patient, um, that can be a decades long um, research project. So it really spans uh, many, many years and efforts from many, many different scientists. Um, so usually where it starts is there's some disease we're interested in, right? So say cancer or Alzheimer's disease. Biochemists will then study how the underlying biology behind that disease. So why is it that people get cancer? Well, it's because certain proteins in cells start to misfunction, um, and then that misfunction can cause things like tumor growth. So once we've identified the underlying biological problem, that's sort of when chemists start to play more and more of a role. Um, so we identify these proteins. Okay, so this protein is misbehaving if we were able to design a molecule that can bind to that protein and shut it down, we might be able to treat the disease. So then what chemists do is they go in, they look at the structure of the protein, they try to think about, okay, what molecules can I design that can fit perfectly into that protein? You know, we usually have to make hundreds, if not thousands of iterations of the compound before it's highly potent. Um, so that takes a long time we need to make sure it's safe. So proving that it doesn't then interfere with other biological processes is a huge undertaking as well. So yeah, it can, from start to finish, you know, this is really multiple, multiple decades. And the, the part that we play a role in is how to make, how to be able to make compounds as quickly as possible. So if you do need to make a thousand compounds to test, um, 
perhaps you could use our chemistry to do that. It, it, so how, how does that work to do that many compounds? What, I don't know, is there a particular process you use or equipment? I, I'm uncertain how that works. I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, synthetic chemistry is really changing a lot. Um, it used to be a very manual process. Every reaction you ran had to be set up by hand. You know, this is PhD trained chemists, you know, adding chemicals to a flask and yeah. running the reaction. Um, but there's actually a lot more automation in the process now. Um, so there are robots that can weigh out reagents, dispense exactly the right amount of solvent, heat up, cool down, purify your compounds. Uh, and more and more, we're trying to leverage these automation tools to make it a lot faster to make compounds. So that, that's a whole field in and of itself. Um, so if you go to Lilly or any pharmaceutical company, you'll see that they're using automation both to make compounds as well as to test them very quickly. Okay, so if I have um, students, if I'm a high school student sitting yeah. here, I think, oh my gosh, this sounds like the coolest job. This, I mean, this is what I thought when I was in high school. That sounds like the coolest job. I, that's what yeah. I want to do. What do I need to really, I mean, obviously chemistry, right? I need to yeah. know chemistry, but what what do I need to focus on in chemistry? What what other subjects should I look at taking to to pursue a, something, a job like this or a career like this? Yeah, totally. So. Um, you know, one thing I always like to remind young students is usually you don't really know what you want to do until you actually, you know, get to college, you try different things. Um, so I certainly didn't go into college thinking I wanted to be a chemist. Um, I was a pre-med student when I started college um, and I was a biomedical engineer and I really didn't switch to chemistry until I got to the PhD stage. So. Um, I would say first thing is, yeah, there isn't really a predefined path where, okay, you need to take these courses, otherwise you won't be able to do this sort of thing. I think at the early stages, it's really about getting a very deep and general education in science. Um, so math, of course, is very important. Um, every field of science has a lot of data and a lot of um, ways that we need to process that data. Uh, and then the core sciences, chemistry, physics, and math, uh, in, and chemistry, physics, and biology are all actually tied into chemistry in, in some way. So yeah, I think um, for high school students, if you're taking STEM courses, you're really enjoying them, I think that's a great place to start. Great. Well, so speaking of the, you know, coming up with these compounds, what compounds specifically are you working on or, or what sorts of things specifically are you, are you studying? Yeah, so um, our lab focuses on catalysts that contain transition metals. So if you think to your periodic table, the transition metals sit kind of right in the middle of the periodic table. Um, and transition metals are kind of special um, because uh, they are able to use d orbitals as part of their bonding. So that's actually why they're sitting in the middle of the periodic table. Um, and that uh, turns out to be very useful for organic chemistry because those metals are very good at breaking bonds and reforming bonds um, very quickly. So actually, a lot of the most efficient catalysts that we use are based on transition metals. Um, for example, if you, have a, if you own a car, your car contains a catalytic converter, um, which is responsible for um, scrubbing some of the toxic 
um, gases in the exhaust out. So it gets rid of some of the CO that would be produced, carbon monoxide. Um, so that's a platinum-based catalyst or a palladium-based catalyst. Um, so that's a, that's a transition metal that sits in that middle part of the periodic table. So uh, one of the big things that we're really focused on is how to use very abundant elements to do catalysis. Um, so your catalytic converter contains platinum. Um, you might be surprised to hear that because platinum is extremely expensive. And if anything else worked, we wouldn't use platinum. <laughs> um, but it turns out that a lot of the best catalysts are based on those very expensive metals. So one big research question for us is, how do you go from platinum up to palladium, which is right above platinum in the PR table, up to nickel, which is above that, um, and much less expensive than the elements that are further down? I, I like that explanation, especially of the transition metals. I feel like sometimes in high school, like that kind of gets glossed over. And yeah. so I, I really, I appreciate, um, you know, that, that that's interesting to hear. <laughs> Yeah, I, I couldn't remember. I, I guess I'd, I'd heard what was in the catalytic converters, but I couldn't right. remember what that was. And uh, I, I know how expensive they are since I've had right. to buy one or two <laughs> in my, my years. And so uh, I thank you for that research. Uh, yes. If you can make those cheaper, I would appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Is that what you spent most of your career on, that type of research then? I didn't know if you like studied other things that led into that or how your your career path has gone. Yeah, so um, I have actually spent a pretty large fraction of my training in this field. Um, so when I was a graduate student, um, I was studying um, catalysts, but actually a very different type of catalyst. Um, so catalysts that are based only on um, organic compounds. So these were catalysts that contain carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen primarily. Um, so the switch to studying transition metals really came for me after graduate school. Um, so for people who end up doing research, whether it's at a university or at a company, um, usually after your PhD, you would do additional training. So we call it postdoctoral training or postdoctoral research. Um, so I spent two years at Caltech studying um, transition metals, and that's what really got me interested in transition metal catalysts as a as a professor. Oh. Well, that's cool. You know, yeah. Basically, it sounds like a little bit of on-job training. You got to actually, yeah, after right. you get your PhD, you jump in and start doing stuff with it. Yeah, that's right. And I think also, you know, how do you combine everything you learn as an undergrad, as a grad student, as a postdoc, and sort of turn it into a new new research area for, for your own lab. Absolutely. Um, who, how many students are in your lab currently? My lab currently has nine graduate students and two postdoctoral researchers. And then I always have some number of undergraduate researchers. Um, so currently we have three, um, usually we have somewhere between three to five undergrads. So yeah, it's a, it's a, Good number for me, I think. Wow, that is. And what sorts of tasks are the um, would the undergraduate researchers be helping with? Um, that's a great question. So um, undergraduate researchers can really be involved in anything and everything that our lab does. Um, so when they first start in my group, um, there's a lot of training that they need to go through in order to be able to run reactions, 
um, get good data, analyze that data, um, carry out experiments safely in the lab. Um, but after they've spent maybe a year or so in my group, um, they can really operate pretty independently, you know, designing their own experiments, um, figuring out what happened, trying to plan their project, you know, even up to the stage of writing their own papers and, and things like that. So, um, especially for the students who spend maybe two years in my lab um, and are hoping to go to grad school afterward, um, that's really an opportunity for them to basically be like graduate students by the end, end of their time as undergrads. Yeah, it sounds like a, a nice kind of um, way to get in, kind of get trained a little bit about what it would be like to be a graduate yeah, student. Yeah, so. totally. Yeah, yeah, that's part of the goal, right? Is so so mm -hmm. so people really understand what graduate school will be, you know, if, if they decide to pursue that. Sure. But how does if someone's just getting an undergrad, they're right out of high school, they're going, mm -hmm. they're starting to kind of research something. Let's say they're interested in chemistry or something. They heard that about transmission metals and how they could do things with like that. How could an undergrad go about getting to work into a lab, in, in a lab? Um, at Purdue, there are a lot of different ways that we do that. Um, so um, the first opportunity students might have is we have an honors research course for freshman students. So even in their first year, um, before they've you know, completed general chemistry, um, they can be placed in a lab. Um, of course, at that stage, students um, are still at the very early stages of their coursework. Um, so they're learning alongside doing experiments, uh, but they can still run experiments, um, still understand what they're doing, um, and then sort of build from there. Um, I would say that's uh, atypical. So most undergraduate students will start doing research more in their sophomore to junior year. Um, and the process is actually very simple. Um, uh, looking at the different research groups that are available, um, uh, the group websites are always really useful at providing information about what types of research everybody's doing. Uh, and then just re reaching out to professors individually by email, asking if they have a spot available. And that's usually how it starts. Cool. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Um, it's, it, I would say I've heard a number of people as we've done interviews really encourage students to get into research and, and see how they like that and get their feet wet and uh, gain that experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of students don't, maybe don't even realize that's an uh, option or wouldn't really think to email a random professor they've never met before. Um, but uh, we get those emails all the time and we're always happy to get them um, and talk to students. So yeah, I would definitely encourage everyone to do that. Well, thank you. That's 